Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Labor Day 2023 is in the books for many, just like other national holidays that are celebrated. Its benefits consist of federal, state, county, and city workers getting the day off, and schools, libraries, banks, and the post office are closed as well. But Charles, I wonder how many people know the origins and history preceding Labor Day, and it's becoming a national holiday. When I was growing up, Labor Day meant the end of summer, sad, and the reality that school was about to resume, also sad. What did this holiday mean to you when you were growing up? As best I recall, it meant a day off from school. Uh, it didn't. It didn't mean that much regarding labor and work. I grew up in a lower middle class neighborhood where most people worked and various types of jobs, including my mother, who was a single mom. So there was plenty of work that was going on. But, you know, here in the southern United States, uh, unions and labor movements have not been all that common, for better or for worse, depending on your perspective, I guess. But the history of Labor Day is a very interesting one. It is one that people should probably know about, because like everything else in God's creation, uh, humanistic man comes up with his own versions of things that offer counterfeits of God's plan and God's purpose. And God's word certainly speaks a great deal about work and labor. Yeah, the very first thing Adam was charged with was tending the garden, which is a type of work and labor. Right. So labor unions and socialist sympathies played a significant role in labor being honored by a national holiday, specifically the first Monday in September. And you will hear many a union member say, and I'm reminded by a high school acquaintance of mine, every year she posts on her Facebook page, if it wasn't for unionized labor, you wouldn't have an eight-day I mean, an eight-hour workday, a five-day work week, minimum wage, health benefits, job security, and safety measures for workers. In fact, I recently watched a video of an interviewer asking people on the street of a major city why we celebrate Labor Day. Most answered, and I might add when prodded, that because of labor unions, people of the country were no longer being built and abused by big corporations. So that's the narrative that's pretty much espoused, as, as you indicated, depending on your point of view, that was either good or bad. But as always, as this podcast endeavors to do, let's start off by establishing what the Bible has to say about labor. Well, as I indicated, uh, when God created man in his own image, as recorded in Genesis 2 and 3, and he charged him, he put him in the garden and charged him with the responsibility of having dominion over the work of creation and tending and keeping the garden. That was his job under God as his vice regent. And, you know, we can speculate about whether that work would have been considered 
tedious or difficult. Most people think that after the fall, work became harsh and, you know, hard to do and not a blessing. I don't know the theology of that thoroughly, but the point is from the very beginning, uh, human beings were created to engage in meaningful, uh, purposeful labor. And then, of course, um, and the giving of the law uh, in Exodus 20, verse 9, um, the law of God says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. So again, this is, of course, many, many centuries after creation, but the creation ordinance of labor is still in force. So labor is a very important thing in God's word. And then further on into the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, the Lord gave very specific guidelines about uh, employment, employers, workers, and how they're to be treat- treated. And certainly it has been the case that uh, workers have not been treated well in some cases, either by employers or big companies. One of the most enduring memories of my youth was seeing the movie Woodstock in the theater here. And the haunting voice of Joan Baez, as she sang this song, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. I didn't know who Joe Hill was. Uh, and it, I mean, it's a very beautiful anthem. Uh, she sang it because her husband was in jail because he'd been doing labor organizing or something like that in places where labor unions were not welcome. Well, I did some research not long thereafter and found that Joe Hill was a communist. He worked for the industrial workers of the world in organizing labor unions in places uh, to promote the, the Marxist ideal of, of work and labor. So from the very beginning, the labor union movement, whatever its ideals may have been, they have not been biblical ideals. They may have been on some level to help workers, quote unquote. But for people who take God's word seriously, for believers, indeed, in, in terms of God's plan and program, the starting point for all of these endeavors, whether it be work or leisure, whether it be working for someone or you employing someone, the starting point is what does God's law word say about how we are to discharge these duties? I wasn't going to bring it up because I didn't know you were going to bring up Woodstock, but years after Woodstock, uh, a number of my friends and I went up to that area Mm -hmm. to get away for a weekend or something like that. Somebody had a cabin and it was right in the middle of where Woodstock had happened. And so being a goofy high school girl, um, you know, into the garb of my poncho and my headband, I went around. (laughs) And with like a pretend microphone, it wasn't even a real microphone, interviewing people about what it was like when Woodstock was there, expecting, oh, it was wonderful. Those people hated Max Yasger (laughs) (laughs) because the people came in. He had a very limited amount of land, but people had garbage. One woman had a baby born on her front lawn. It, the, this utopia that you'd see in the Woodstock movie, they were trashing other people's property and everything else. So um, the fact that Joan Baez might have been lamenting what was happening or had happened to Joe Hill, there were plenty of other people who were lamenting other things. You, since you brought up Woodstock, I thought I would share that. Well, and if if we can continue our, our little boomer escapade, I'm sure people are already thinking that about us here. 
Woodstock was originally to be in Woodstock, New York, but the townspeople, once they realized what they were being asked to host, said, uh, no, you won't be doing that here. So they moved the festival quite a few miles further into central New York in a place called Bethel, New York. Yes. So, so that's where it actually happened. Um, but yes, uh, and, and really, if you even with the movie, as as much as it was glamorized and romanticized in the movie, you still get enough of a, uh, a sense of what you saw there. You now see on the streets of major cities. Exactly. You know, somebody, somebody, uh, uh, somebody that I read a lot in respect of has said that some years ago, he said that the whole country has become a gay disco. And the reason he said that, when you understand the culture of homosexuals and the the disco, that was a large part of the early part of the homosexual movement. Well, the same thing we could say the whole country has become, you know, Woodstock during the rain and mud part of it. So Right. Another tidbit was when Woodstock was happening, I was still in high school and I was contemplating the idea because someone invited me to go because I lived in New York at the time right. and talk about how potential penalties can sometimes keep you in line. Mm-hmm. I knew I could go, but I also knew that my father would kill me. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't go. I lamented the fact that I was so oppressed that I couldn't go. Um, now I look back and you have to be grateful for um, having a healthy fear of your father. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. So we can start off by establishing that the, what the Bible, and as you pointed out, has to say about labor and work. The Sabbath commandment doesn't talk about weekends doesn't talk about paid vacations. It tells us to work, whether we're one who's employing others or, you know, being employed, to work honestly as unto the Lord for six days and to rest. So in a lot of ways, we have a mock or counterfeit Sabbath of humanistic um, proportions when we talk about the weekend, because the weekend now replaces the Sabbath, but let's be real. Not everybody gets a day off on Labor Day. Truly, it's mostly those who were part of federal, state, county unions. So that's why government offices are closed. But if you own a restaurant, if you own any sort of business, car dealership, retail store, you're going to work because we've got the Labor Day sales and the Labor Day sales are very important. So it's like many of our holidays. It has been commercialized like Thanksgiving or Christmas. But in a lot of ways, as a result of that, people don't understand that it has um, roots in socialism and that a lot of the quote unquote gains that were made by labor happened as a result of socialistic and communistic influence. And so you had strikes, you had riots. And as always, if you can't deal with violations of God's law, you're going to have humanistic solutions. So it was to appease a growing number of radical people who embraced the ideas of Marx and Engels that brought about, okay, okay, we'll have a national holiday that honors labor. But when you think about it, if gains happened because the idea of a conflict of interests was at the core, which is often what is at the roots of communistic thinking, as opposed to the Bible's um, call for a harmony of interests, then the gains, how were those gains achieved? That's the question. 
Yes, and uh, <clears throat> I'm thinking of um, a YouTube video that my wife and I we recently watched. Um, a guy who travels around the country and visits obscure communities. Um, he's been he's he's visited uh, Native American tribes where most Anglo's are not welcome or allowed. Uh, he, he's visited uh, Latino communities in Los Angeles, and most recently he was in various parts of Appalachia here in this part of the East Coast in West Virginia and parts of Virginia and North Carolina. And one pl- one place he visited was a coal mine area where there's still generational, you know, Appalachian folks who've lived in that area. And one of the guys was saying that, uh, I don't know if this was current or if this went back some years, but one of the challenges that the coal miners had to deal with was the fact that they work, you know, below the earth, you know, eight, ten hours a day in the darkness. And then when payday came around, they got paid well, but in some of these cases, they were paid with money made by the uh, the coal mine company that could only be redeemed at their store. So it, it was kind of a, a racket all the way around from one standpoint. But here's the thing. Like I said, it, there's no doubt that people have been mistreated by places that they work, by bosses and, and whatnot. But the solution to that is not the adoption of a wholesale Marxist um, view of history and reality that as we know is far far worse uh anyone who has any doubts about that just simply do the study of the history of Mao Zedong in China and the Bolsheviks in Russia and the former Soviet Union but here's the point in Leviticus 19:13 God says you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning now that's just one small snippet of what God's law word has to say about the issue of work and labor. If people would simply follow the directions of God Almighty, even I suppose if someone said, I don't really believe this stuff, but it makes sense to me, they would prosper and prosper well. But God gave these instructions and this guidance uh, to human beings as a means of their flourishing in this world. And so right away, people are told, you shall not cheat your neighbor. You won't rob him. You don't, if you're paying him for something, if you're an employer, if you'd hired, if you hired a man to do something, you don't wait until three days later to pay him. You agree on the wages and you pay it the next morning. And isn't it interesting that when you say that, that that is biblical and Martin Selbretti, Calcedon's vice president talks about this a lot. Per the scripture, you shouldn't get paid once a week or once every two weeks or once a month. You're, the worker is worthy of his hire. And if you even look at the parables in terms of the workers in the vineyard, they were paid at the end of the day. So why have we accepted that it's okay for our wages to be held on to? Well, think back. Hmm. We've got the Federal Reserve System. We've got the income tax. And we've got the federal government and the state government forcing employers to give them their cut. So before you get paid, the federal government, the state government, the county government, city government, they get paid. And the disability and social security and all that comes out. So we do have a system of theft going on and we have people taking credit for how good it is. Well, think of all the government regulations that have come about because socialistic 
people, socialistic minded people demanded their rights. I mean, it's common knowledge, no matter what people say, that minimum wage hurts the poor and basically encourages employers to automate or outsource what they need. Yes, and uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, in verses 14 and 15, uh, God's law where it says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the strangers sojourners who are in your land with your own town within your towns you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets the word says for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against yahweh jehovah and you be guilty of sin that's exactly what you're referring to and martin has referred to there i will get around to this sooner or later i'm going to get around to it sooner i guess but uh, dr rustuni and the institutes of biblical law of course addresses this in a very direct way now my addition it's on the, about the Eighth Commandment on page 504, where he has an, an entire section on labor laws. And again, this is another area where some people are just dumbstruck when they realize that God has given perfect guidelines about how we are to function in all areas of life. You know, uh, I guess because of the influence of some types of evangelical Christianity that our late brother Gary North used to say, see the Old Testament as the word of God emeritus. Uh, they don't think about these things. You know, that has this has nothing to say to me about my work or my employer. So I'm going to go to the latest, you know, book in the business section of the bookstore, or or if if you're an impressionable college student, you'll start reading Marx and Engels and the Communist Manifesto and all the rest of it, rather than start at the absolute source of all justified knowledge and wisdom, which is God's law word. And that's why a lot of people, when those of us who are theonomic, we say God's law applies to every area of life and thought, sometimes say, well, you're so Pollyanna. You actually think that's going to work? Well, you know, you have to get the ax to the root. If our economic system is based on violations of God's law, then it won't succeed, even if it might succeed for a couple of years, a number of decades for you. Ultimately, any unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. And so how many people, when they hear the John Lennon song, Imagine, and love it, they just think that's such a wonderful thing, realize that the sentiments in that song, imagine there's no boundaries, imagine there's no heaven, there's no hell. Oh, yeah, if there is no heaven and hell the way God describes it and promises that as a destination, depending on your faithfulness to the covenant, then everything becomes hell. And so um, as I was kind of thinking through this and researching it, it's obvious that Labor Day has socialistic roots and that, um, as I think it was Lenin said, socialism is just the car that gets you to communism. And people hear that and they think, oh, yeah, you're so hysteric. You're so hysterical. Well, they would realize how serious our societal situation is if they knew biblical law and see how far removed it is from what God says. Yes. And of course, communism and socialism are worldviews that have application in the real world. That may sound like a, a foregone thing to say, but it's important to remember. And in, in, a, in a parallel way, I recall, since we're hearkening back to the, the days of our misspent youth, 
<laughs> when I was younger, being very enamored of Eastern philosophy and, and Hinduism and Buddhism and those kinds of things, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a nice, safe thing to pursue when you're of a certain age and you're living in a culture that isn't based on the presuppositions of those religions. But when you go to the places where those worldviews have predominated, you get a very, very different sense of how the religious ideals of pagan religions have played out in real society. I remember talking to a guy in Sedona, Arizona some years ago, which is a real new age haven for a lot of people. And he was all into that. And he said his goal, he had a, he had a business there. And he said, my goal is to go to India. Because I, I just heard that's, you know, that's the great place to be spiritually. And I kept thinking about a video I'd seen of, uh, of this guy who, who travels around a lot. And he spent a lot of time in India. But he goes off the beaten path into not obscure places, but it's not the uh, um, the, the the travel agency version of the tour. And you get a sense of how poverty-stricken these places are. And this is an outworking of the worldview in, in that case and, and others. You know, it's marginally better in some other types of cultures, but all of these places have the evidences and 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 marxist communist dominated societies what few there are left uh, you you see it in stark relief and anyone who wants to get a good idea if you could find an objective analysis of the history of the communist revolution in china and also especially in the soviet union uh, read the works of alexander solzhenitsyn in that regard and you'll realize rather than a workers paradise it was a hell on earth for everybody except the oligarchs who were running and controlling everything. Uh, it, in other words, nothing really changed. Like uh, the song, <laughs> we're, we're into the 60s here, Andrea. Okay. You know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So it's interesting that you point out that uh, people have this idealistic view of various cultures. What we're seeing is the product of a government school system where the worldview presented is going to be very different than a biblical worldview. And so I imagine we could have a debate with those who think unions are the backbone of the country. But if you look at the people involved and what they did, how you're going to evaluate those people will be different according to your premises or your presuppositions. So Eugene Debs is the name of one who comes up as being very instrumental in organizing the union mentality. And he, as far back as the late 1800s, was leading strikes when the workers were dissatisfied. So once again, there's this conflict of interest. Now, Debs had Marx's sympathies. He and the other rioters participated in a riot that became labeled the Haymaker Riots because they were protesting and things got ugly. And this is just an interesting point of trivia. Who was his lawyer that defended him? None other than Clarence Darrow, who's right. famous for the Scopes trial. Debs founded the Social Democracy of America, the Socialistic Democratic Party of America, the Socialist Party of America, all between 1870 um, excuse me, 1897 and 1901. He ran for president five times on the Socialist Party, and among his followers was Roger Baldwin, who founded the ACLU. Right. Um, the 
riots again took place in 1919, which came to be known as the May Day riots of 1919. So you had all sorts of governmental agencies. You had the president at the time trying to appease these people. And as always, when you appease people who are using terror tactics, you don't end up in a better situation. Uh, I think the president at the time was Grover Cleveland. Maybe he thought it would help him get reelected. He wasn't reelected. But this is the part I thought was interesting in the research I did. Bernie Sanders, we all are familiar with Bernie Sanders, produced a documentary praising Eugene Debs and hung a portrait of him in the city hall of Burlington, Vermont, and dedicated a plaque to him in his congressional office. So we can see that based on your presuppositions, based on whether or not you fear the Lord and know that every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is to be followed, you're going to have um, a difficult time reconciling this with people who actually believe socialism and communism are good things. And just as to complete the thread, it isn't difficult to see the roots of the thinking that I just described in Bill Ayers, Barack Obama, and those who founded BLM. Yes, if our listeners uh, would be so inclined, if you do a little bit of research on the history of uh, the the labor movement generally in these United States, but Labor Day as a holiday in particular, you will find that um, I don't know what branch of our esteemed federal government it is that would engage in this practice, but they generally award some kind of labor recognition every year for Labor Day or something like that. The, the names of those who've been so honored over the decades, uh, quite a few of them, if they weren't outright communist and Marxist, they had definite leanings in that direction. So as you have said several times, Andrea, this is a, a movement and a, a, a holiday that has been fertilized, you know, with uh, with the product of the Marxist orientation. And it is not grounded in a biblical perspective. You know, people who were the original founders of the what would become the United States operated far from a far different perspective about work and labor. Their understanding was that God had empowered them to do work, to do meaningful work to his glory, to establish families, uh, to establish homes, and in, engage in the work necessary for doing and accomplishing those things. There's uh, a memorable line in the, uh, uh, the the movie Chariots of Fire, where the man who plays, I believe he played Eric Little's father, the character, said, you know, you can praise God by peeling a potato if you do it to his glory. And, you know, that's kind of a, a, a nice little way to remember this is what we are called to do, is to glorify God in all that we do, but especially as it relates to our labor and work. And again, when we look to the law word of God, we find he has said a great deal uh, about what we are to do concerning our la- our labor, our work to his glory. Why are we doing what we're doing? If people have meaningless jobs, uh, at, you know, w- working in a cubicle, staring at a screen and going home and playing video games and looking at pornography for two or three hours and then going to bed and getting up and doing the same thing over and over again, that's not the sort of meaningful labor that God ordained for his people. Uh, you can see also some interesting aspects of how this is to be understood in terms of how labor is done and the the fairness or what may appear to be maybe a lack of fairness 
there's a well-known parable in Matthew chapter 20, where the owner of a vineyard hires laborers at different times of the day, and he agrees with each of those laborers for a certain wage. Now, let me ask you, Andrea, are you familiar with that parable? Absolutely. Why, why don't you finish it out for us? I think about it every time I pass by like a Home Depot and you have a bunch of people out there hoping that somebody will pick them to do some work. And right. of course, the meaning of the parable, I mean, you can you can extract a lot of different meaning from it spiritually, but economically, what it said was that vineyard owner owned the vineyard and he needed people to go ahead and work for him. And so the guy's at nine o'clock in the morning. He says, hey, would you like to come and work? And they say, yeah, okay, I'll pay you this much. So they go and they work from nine to close or whatever close was. I guess it must have been like when the sun went down. And But he could see that it wasn't going to fulfill the job. So he went out and he got some more at a different time. Finally, he ends up an hour before closing, you might say, and hires a, a group of people. And each time... He has an agreement, I'll pay you this wage. Except for the last guys, he says, I'll pay you what's fair. So they're just happy to get work. Well, as the parable continues, the vineyard owner starts paying people backwards. Not the guys who were there first, but the guys who came in later. And they see that those latecomers are getting paid the same thing he promised them. And so in their mind, they said, well... Of course, we're going to get paid more. We worked longer. And then when they get paid what was agreed, they're very distraught and saying, it's not fair. It's not fair. You can imagine them going out and saying, we need to have an hourly minimum wage. This is not fair. He can't do this to us. And of course, the vineyard owner says, this is my property. I can do with what I want. So if I'm giving the person who worked an hour the same as what I agreed to pay you, what is it to you? You got what we agreed upon, right? So um, I always, when I'm teaching um, students, especially young people, when do you think the minimum wage is a good idea? Oh, yes, yes, it's very important. Yes, people need a living wage. Well, if that's the case, then maybe the owner of the vineyard will just, you know, suck it up for a while and then buy some machinery and he won't need any people, which is what happens if you basically make the cost of doing business so high, people will figure out ways to automate or outsource. Uh, Dr. Rashtuni, in uh, the the Institutes of Biblical Law, in the um, reference I made a few moments ago, uh, he, he points out, and I'm quoting him, the property owner is the sole governor of his property, and uh, provided he deals honestly with his workmen, can do as he pleases with his own. And th- that parable highlights this very issue. And, you know, as you said, the, some of the workers begin to object. Well, wait a minute. You know, wait, that's not fair. And uh, in verse 15, the vineyard owner says, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So this is a, a prime, another prime example, I think, that some people may be shocked to see how Thoroughly, God's law word addresses something, in this case, like labor and work. And uh, it's ultimately God's word that determines the nature of these things and what is allowable and what is just and what is right or wrong. When the state gets involved, that's where we run into problems. 
And that's right. where we come up with the kinds of uh, silly and crazy things that anybody who's ever tried to run a business, depending on what state or county you're in, you can encounter all kinds of difficulties that don't seem to make a lot of sense. I recall uh, one of the churches that I served in another state, um, the building had uh, suffered a catastrophic fire and they had to rebuild the sanctuary and they were not allowed to rebuild it unless certain codes were met meeting the state standards of what it considered safe or not safe. Uh, they had to put in an elevator because there was an upstairs, lest there be someone who needed an elevator to get up there and all these kinds of things that, you know, in a bygone era where people you know, function more according to God's word, it would have been up to, you know, the the the, the session, the elders, the, the deacons or whoever as to how that would be handled. And, well, you say, well, what about someone who in that case might have been handicapped? What if... Well, in that case, you would go to a church where they were more sympathetic to that need, and that's probably where you'd end up going. So that's a far better solution than a tyrannical state dictating to any and everyone how they're going to build certain buildings, how they're going to run their business. Um, but the groundwork, the foundation, is people governing themselves according to the law word of God. Where that is missing, it inevitably will devolve into something unfair, and that's why the 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 proliferation of the kingdom message is so very vitally important and this is the this is the foundational business that we've been charged with by our lord you know to disciple the nations to make them his disciples and so all of these things for example in this area of labor that we're talking about can become a reality in god's world in essence what has happened is that the federal government state governments have become partners in every business you didn't ask for a partner but you've got one and businesses that uh, operate within the United States have to hire people who will go ahead and fulfill all the government requirements, and they have to pay that person to do it. So lest people say, well, we're, we're all so free, isn't this wonderful? We don't really have a free market the way a free market should be defined. We have government partnerships that say, as you put it, you have to have an elevator. I remember when I sat on the board of a Christian school that was renting a space from a church that had been there forever, that in order to go ahead and do it, they had to build a, a, a trash dumpster, right? Mm -hmm. And then right. close it. And they also had to make the bathrooms accessible for wheelchairs. Now, the church never had to do any of this, but because the school was going to go ahead and rent the space they had to do it. Well, they had no students that were in wheelchairs. They never did have students that were in wheelchairs, but the process, they had to go ahead and build it at their own expense. And then there was the permit fees to have someone come out every once in a while and look at it and go, no, yes. Eventually, that school closed down and couldn't afford to be in business because they had spent close to $50,000 to do this remodel and everything. And you might say, okay, well, the church benefited from it, but that's really not the point. Here was another example of a Christian school not being able to make it. And a lot of times that is why Christian schools can't make it because of the heavy fees that are imposed by the local governments. But in early America, colonial times and early in the founding era, we didn't have labor unions. We had people who were in business and they had to treat those who worked for them well 
Otherwise, they could go someplace else. And it's this idea we have today that if there's a wrong, the civil government has to fix it. There are plenty of wrongs that exist, and there always have been. But this is where the church is told, go out and make disciples. When people become disciples of Jesus Christ, then stealing from others, harming others, coveting what others have, having unsafe work conditions, now they understand, I'm not just sinning against these other people, I'm sinning against God. So what you can't do in a socialistic, communistic realm is you can't have people who become new creatures. All you can do is force them into subservience, and then you have the clever ones figure out how to make the system work to their advantage. Yes, and that uh, early American society of the original 13 states or colonies, um, as we talked about last time, uh, common law in many of these places was in effect, which meant, which was another way of saying biblical law, and where there was a, a need for action, citizens would come together operating from the standpoint of, of biblical principles to resolve issues. And we get this pattern in, in God's word where among God's old covenant people, the, the government was highly decentralized. There was no need for a, uh, a centralized government uh, top heavy with you know, reg- rules and regulations and, and all these uh, things that we are so accustomed to today. Now, I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, maybe even the last one we did. And with your permission, I think it would be helpful for people to hear what God's word says about what happens when you make the transition from God's standard of living in society and the areas that we're talking about to something that is pagan and tyrannical. Uh, in First Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel, they wanted a king like everyone else, which meant a centralized, tyrannical authority. And they were warned, you don't want to do that. You're, you're turning against God's word for something that is man-made. And so Samuel, the prophet, under God's direction, tells them, he says, this is how the king will rule over you. He will take your sons. He will use them for his chariots and his cavalry as runners for his chariots. In other words, he will draft your children into military exploits. He will use them as his commanders of troops. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take your best friends and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will give one-tenth of your grain and your vineyards to his officials and servants. He will take your male and female servants along with the best of your cattle and donkeys and make them do his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and then you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out because the king you chose for yourselves. uh, But on that day, the Lord will not answer you. So people should think carefully uh, about how we got to the situation we're in today and Christian schools that have a hard time functioning in some areas probably can look back to a time when their ancestors were happy to let the government take over the process of educating their children, which made it hard for those who now want to get back to a biblical model for either homeschooling or Christian schools, uh, because the other has been in place so long, and a, and a pagan worldview has replaced what Scripture has given us. But as that passage from First Samuel 8 testifies, this has been a long, age-old problem. Yes. I think of those portions of Scripture where somebody is cleaning up and discovers the Bible. <laughs> and it's like, oh my goodness, look what it says here. Um, because most of us 
who are alive today were born into a socialist moving enlightenment informed society don't remember a time when things were on a biblical standard. And so I think what happens a lot with Christian reconstruction is people read the Bible and they say, oh my goodness, this is not supposed, what we have now is not what it's supposed to be. And then you can look back on things like the Tower of Babel and realize it was a socialistic, communistic endeavor. And God did thwart it. And God, in his purpose, allows things to go for so long, like the Bible will say, he's long-suffering, but there comes a time when, as the expression goes, the chickens come home to roost. So when Jeremiah is prophesying to the people of Judah, he's not giving them a happy, clappy, by the way, you're going to be rescued out of here. His message is, that's it. The time has come, and you're either going to be overrun militarily, and some of you will die, and some of you will starve, and some of you will be taken into captivity. Very interestingly, very few people will preach on the prophets because the logical question is, hmm, if it was true for them, then why wouldn't it be true for us now? Yes, and uh, the Chalcedon Foundation has recently released uh, Dr. Rastuni's lectures and messages from the minor prophets. Um, and, you know, he speaks to that and, and that little book, it's well worth uh, recommending to our listeners and i um i'd like to wrap up my part of this by calling to mind something i saw many many decades ago uh, visiting my next door neighbor who uh, they had just come from a vacation in florida and back then it was uh, an, a not uncommon thing for people to buy little souvenirs and knickknacks and bring them back home <laughs> and uh, this was a little wooden plaque that hung on the wall of my neighbor's house and I've never forgotten the saying that was on it. It was a picture of a man in a suit. And he said, I like my job. It's the work I hate. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. And I think the, the point that we're trying to make, or at least one of them, is that we should love both because we're doing them to God's glory. And we are doing our work. We're doing our jobs, whether we be employer or employee, by his standard. Exactly. You know, there's a quote from Ayn Rand, who was by no means a Christian, but she did have interesting insights. The quote goes, there's no difference between communism and socialism, except in the means of achieving the same ultimate end. Communism proposes to enslave men by force, socialism by vote. Mm. It is yes. merely the difference between murder and suicide. And so as we sing the praises of the union movement and say, okay, yes, eight hour work day, 40 hour work week, minimum wage, blah, blah, blah. We also need to take into account that as a result of union demands and the fact that they have this government partnership that will enforce the things they want, many corporations and municipalities are particularly going bankrupt because of the union demands that are placed on them and the fact that union workers get these pensions that in oftentimes that oftentimes bankrupt either the municipality or the corporation. So when union demands are met, usually jobs are lost. And let's not forget that some of the biggest lobbying that goes on in Washington, D.C. are paid for by unions, the teachers unions, the 
um, AFL-CIO, right? So these things end up producing higher wages, increased taxes, expensive lawsuits, burdensome regulations, environmental restrictions, and what has been come to known as crony capitalism. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's free market, but we've got the finger on the scale, and that allows us to achieve our ends. And so I think back, and I don't know, a lot of our listeners will remember, the older ones will, Nikita Khrushchev, right? He was the oh, big yes. bad guy when I was growing up, right? Yep. Yes. And there's a quote from him that said, we won't have to fight you. We'll so weaken your economy until you fall like overripe fruit into our hands. Look around. Look around at the dependency most, if not many people, have on the government And by participating in this conflict of interest between citizens who at the mercy of, you know, the big corporations, well, the big corporations figured out that they could be part of this deal. And so there's this cooperation to oppress oftentimes the widow, the orphan, the stranger. So this isn't something to say, oh, okay, well, Labor Day, I get the day off. You need to think of what you're celebrating because the holidays that are enforced and are celebrated will tell you a lot. Don't you think, Charles, about the religion of the culture? Absolutely. That's one of the barometers. And um, just as you were speaking, it occurred to me another work by Dr. Rastuni that I think is sort of relevant to this in terms of how people operate uh, under the rule of the state uh, and this may seem like an unusual one, but his little book called The American Indian is a fascinating discussion uh, about how, uh, as a matter of fact, the subtitle has something to do like that. I, for, I forgot the subtitle of it off the top of my head. But I think people will find that a very interesting read about his work as a missionary among these um, um, Native American tribes in northern Nevada and what it was like for these people living completely on government subsistence. And uh, one of the I think he starts off the book by quoting a certain old Indian elder who told him that, you know, as bad as we have it, you you white men uh, are are far worse because you're on a much bigger reservation or something like that. So, right. Called it reservation fever, I think. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I think we've kind of covered the need for people to pay attention just because it's always been this way doesn't mean it should be this way. But I would like to close out this discussion with the idea that God doesn't need a labor department. This is not the business of civil government to have a labor department. So just like an education department, environmental department, these are not the functions of civil government. You first have to know that in order to be able to combat it. But the the greater issue is when we talk about the gospel of the kingdom, it includes personal salvation, but that's not the end of it. It, it, That's sort of the beginning of it, that until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the mission of the church is that it is acknowledged that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not at some time in the future, but now. And it's our responsibility as part of the covenant, not that we're going to be saved by our works, but our works in terms of the gospel of the kingdom, will be evident as to whether or not we've embraced the full content of Scripture and our responsibilities. Indeed, yes, I agree.
All right. Well, thanks again for listening. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you reach us. And we thank you for those who do send in comments. And um, I often appreciate the suggestions we get. How about you talk about this? And we take those very seriously. So we'll talk with you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.